All right, uh, we're going to start a new series in the book of Nehemiah. It's um, the theme is going to be like rebuild and restore, and I hope that over the next, this will go on between now and right up until Thanksgiving. And so, hope you uh, come back and join us as we take this journey through this book. Uh, as you see, when you find Nehemiah, it's actually before, you know, the book of Psalms and all that. So if you find Psalms, if you're having trouble finding Nehemiah, just go to the book of Psalms, start ch- turning in front of it, and you'll find Nehemiah. But um, Nehemiah is actually one of the, is the last book written to the, the Israelites. It, it, scholars and, and theologians will say My, uh, Malachi and uh, Nehemiah were the last two books written to them. We're going to see historically in a timeline what that looks like here. But Nehemiah is, uh, you know, he's just, it, it, if you look at verse 11, he's, just, he's a cupbearer. He's, he's the guy who, for the king there, he's the one who, taste, who, who tests the drink before they pass it on. So that's who Nehemiah is. Uh, he was actually born in exile. He's never seen Jerusalem, never been there. So he's born in exile there. But he's going to take the people there. He's, he's going to draw their attention. We're going to see as we go through this first chapter, he's going to draw their attention way back to the beginning. From way back to the beginning when even when the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and Moses was sent by God to help get them, bring them out of Egypt and of course uh, into the desert and across the Jordan and, and, and continuously there's going to be references and drawing their attention to God's covenant and God's promises all throughout um, this series, this, 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 uh, as we look through Nehemiah. Um, way back then, God was continually drawing his people to him, but his people kept rejecting him, kept rejecting God. And, and over time, there was prophesied that this, the captivity Babylonians would come in and take them over. And sure enough, as around 605 B.C. is when it started. They took the first wave of deportation, uh, deported the first wave of uh, Jewish people out of uh, Jerusalem and into Babylon, which is like a thousand mile trek, or close to it, if, uh, if you look at it. It's just an incredible journey to take them back there. That was the part where Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and all those guys that you read about in Daniel were taken out in that first wave. In 597 BC, they came back, took some more out. That's where Ezekiel was taken in that group, a prophet there. And so he, he took those out. And then in the third wave was 586 BC, and that's where Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed and so you go through they're in the captivity they are basically enslaved that doesn't mean they're acting like slaves because they got some good jobs you know if you read Daniel you know he's he's you know he's important kind of guy there in that area and a lot of times when whether it was the Assyrians the Persians the Babylonians whoever they would take people in it wasn't just to enslave them but it was to you know they would take in some of the most thought out people, the most respected people and all that in the hopes of getting them to be go-betweens to get the people who were kind of enslaved to respect authority, to do what they wanted to do and all that. But it's also to teach them culturally, this is what goes on in our country. So if you want to kind of earn their respect, you got to be aware of this. You can't just go in there. It's kind of like when I lived in Morocco, you didn't stick your left hand in a dish anywhere. When you're sitting around a table with a bunch of Moroccans, you didn't put your left hand anywhere near the food. Because the left hand was used for something else, and you didn't want to 
put your left hand in the middle of the food because I promise you, you do that and everybody's going to step back away from that table. It's just one of those things you had to learn when you were there. And so culturally, they were there to help them better understand the culture of the people they just took over in the hopes of learning how to better, whether it's to rule them or to even learn some things that they might be able to apply back in their country. But anyway, around 539, the, the Persians came in, they, took, uh, they conquered Babylon, and God spoke through the king there, Cyrus, and said he decreed, Cyrus decreed that all the people could go back to their homelands. And in 538, the first wave of people went back, of, of the Jews went back to Jerusalem, and they went back led by Zerubbabel, and they were going to build the temple. They were going to rebuild the temple there. And it took them a little while to do it because there was some little disruptions there. Uh, but it took them a little while to do it. But by 516 B.C., they were able to complete the temple. And then... Later on, because there were not, you know, qualified priests to kind of lead, the people were still doing what they wanted to do. And Ezra, around 458 B.C., he led a group of people back, the second group wave that went back to uh, Jerusalem there. And th he was there to kind of establish the Torah and the teachings and the laws of God and all that. And then here, this is where we come up to Nehemiah. This is 13 years later after Ezra leads that second group back. We come up to Nehemiah here, and this is where we're going to start. This is a, we're going to see that this is around 446, 445 B.C. And here in chapter 1, and you'll see that here in a minute. So let's just read together chapter 1, and we'll get started in this message this morning. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, their capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some of the men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord, or I urge you, O Lord, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the words or the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered there or were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your great hand or your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer that your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servants successful today and grant him compassion before 
this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we look into your word this morning, that we would hear from you more than we hear from me this morning, that you would speak clearly through me, and that you would open our eyes to those nuggets of truth. You would have us to not just learn, but apply in our lives. Father, help us as we navigate through this. Speak to us. Draw us closer to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in the first chapter, or first verse there, it says, it was in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital. Now, the 20th year of what? Well, we kind of get an idea of what that 20th year is. If you look over in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, and it came about in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. And so in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes in the month of Kislev, that is around November, December of 446 B.C. And So that gives us an idea of the date of this time frame. And he says his brother came and told him about Judah. And he says there in verse 3, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now in that thing, like we said earlier, there was one wave that came in and they were there building up the temple. And when they were building up a temple, there was a lot of people trying to give them a hard time in the surrounding communities. And they caught, you know, they, they, and even the, uh, the Jews themselves stopped building the temple and started building homes for themselves. They just started getting a little more selfish and a little less more of working on the temple itself. But eventually they got back to it. They finished the temple. And then when Ezra came along, they realized Man, these people, they are, they, are being, uh, they, they are being intimidated by the people around them. They're marrying people from these other tribes. They're starting to participate in some of those pagan activities, those gods and things, and, and things of that nature. And they're just neglecting, neglecting not only, not only Jerusalem, the buildings and the walls and, and, and all that, but they're neglecting their faith. And he says, man, they, they, are, they are in distress and reproach. And he says the walls are broken down. But as we can see here, as we, as we think back on what's going on in that time, the people are broken as well. And so it's not just, as we're going to see as we go throughout this series, it's not just the wall there's going, they're going to rebuild, but they're going to attempt to rebuild God's people. They're going to attempt to bring, to prioritize, not just the Torah as an academic, the, the Old Testament as an academic exercise, but they want this to become something that is internalized, that is something that's transformative. Too many times we look at this Bible, we look at the Bible, and we think of it as a, it, it's, it, it's a good book. Well, it's more than just a good book. It's the Word of God. And it is something that transforms us, not just like a science book or not a history book or a, a, a grammar book or anything like that. It, th- this book can transform us as the Spirit works in us. They work together hand in hand. And so they're trying to get the people to come back to God in this situation. Here he's just, he hears this report and his response, Nehemiah's response is, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Now, I, I haven't 
wept and mourned for days over anything that I can think of. I remember as a kid weeping and mourning when mom took dessert away from me. But that wasn't for days. I remember weeping and mourning when dad sent me to the room because I brought home a bad report card and I knew what was coming. Yeah, I wept, but that wasn't for days. Uh, even when my dog died when I was a teenager and just thinking, yeah, I wept, but not for days. I, 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 I don't understand this concept of weeping and mourning for days. But undoubtedly, Nehemiah, even though he had never seen Jerusalem, he had heard the stories he had from, from parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts and everybody who had seen the glory of Jerusalem and remembered that the, how, how it was destroyed and the stories as they're passed down. Nehemiah was one who understood the importance of Jerusalem at that time. Not just to the people, but more, probably more importantly to God. He understood the importance of that. And he says that he was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, when we get into this prayer here, I want us to remember that this is, this is not just, I don't believe this is just where he wrote down exactly what he prayed. This is a, because it says he prayed for days. I just read this in a few minutes, right? So he's praying for days. And we're going to see as we get into the next month, he's actually going on for like four months that this is, this is the length of the time that's going to happen before the king starts asking him questions about why are you so down in the mouth. But here he's, he, he's praying for days. This is a synopsis. It's just like, remember we went through Jonah several months ago and we got to that prayer of Jonah and realized, you know, I read that in just a short period of time and Jonah was actually in the belly of that fish for Three days, that was more than a three-day prayer. He was, you, you know that when you're in the belly of a fish, when you're in an uncomfortable, nasty, warm, moist, dark situation, you're going, to be, you're going to be praying more than just three to five minutes. You're going to be praying continuously. Get me out of here. I'll do what. And finally, it gets to, okay, I know I'm the one that got me into here. Eventually, it's like, okay, whatever you want, God, just let me out of here. And, and eventually, he got spit up on the dry land. Here, Nehemiah is compiling his prayers and his, this big, huge prayer as he's fasting and praying and mourning and weeping for days and, and on. He starts his prayer this way. I said... I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah here is referring to this covenant. He's talking about you're a God who keeps his covenant. Now think about this. They have been in the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. They've started letting people go back, but there's still people kind of staying behind. And a lot of people often ask, well, when the King Cyrus said, hey, y'all can go back home, why didn't everybody just pack up and go back home? Why are there still people left behind here? Well, I just want you to think about it. A lot of people were born in Babylon. That became their quote-unquote home country. That's where they were born. It's not, plus, the journey was a long, hard journey. It's not like old, older people are going to just say, yeah, I'll take this journey and go across the desert for three or four months to get to Jerusalem. They weren't going to do that. They, some people had a pretty nice situation there in Babylon. They didn't want to just up and leave that. And they knew that when they got to Jerusalem, there was going to be some hard work there. And there's some people that are really honest with themselves and going, you know what? I'm not up for that either. 
I like where I am. I was born here. And, 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 and it's kind of like this. We kind of experienced this because I grew up in metro Atlanta, Georgia. My wife grew up in East Texas. Our boys, though, when we would tell them stories about metro Atlanta or East Texas or things like that, they had no desire to go to Texas because that was mama's home or go to Georgia because that was daddy's home. They had no desire. They had not experienced it. They had not seen it. There was nothing there for them. And so you can imagine that after decades and decades passed, these people, they, yeah, I've heard of Jerusalem. I know it's important. I keep hearing the priest saying something about it and all that, but I just don't experience that. I don't know that. And so there's people that are staying behind, but here he is, he's crying out. To, he's a great and awesome God who preserves the covenant. You see, God still preserves the covenant. The covenant is still there. It was the people who left the covenant. It was the people who rejected the covenant. It wasn't that God said, okay, I'm taking my covenant back. No, he was allowing them to go through this difficult time. He, you know, just all of these things that were happening, yeah, it was a punishment, but it was for their good as well to get their attention and realize. And Nehemiah here, he's just saying, you know, God, you are God who keeps your covenant. Nehemiah is recognizing that. And he goes on as he's, as he's talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, as he's talking about his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Oh, great Lord God, I know you're a covenant-keeping God for those who love and keep your commandments. He's starting off this prayer not by saying, woe is me or woe is Jerusalem or woe is... He's talking about the greatness and the covenant keeping and the majesty of God. He's going, it's kind of like when Jesus started teaching the disciples how to pray there in Luke. He's, he, he tells them, how do you start your prayer? Hallowed be thy name. Honored be your name. He said, you start off your prayers recognizing who he is and his station and his situation and his, who he is, not who we are. We start off recognizing his greatness before we try to kind of build in our situation, our problem, our circumstances before him. He's elevating Christ. He's exalting God. He's here putting God in a place where he belongs. And then he says, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Talking about himself, of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant. Moses. He begins by confessing, recognizing that they are sin. But look at what he says here. Look at what he says here. He's crying out for him to be attentive and his eyes open to hear his prayer that I am praying to you, talking about day and night, on behalf of the sons of it, confessing sins. And then he says, we have against you. We have against you. And then he brings it closer to home. I and my father's house. And I imagine during those days of prayer, he didn't do it here, but I can imagine that he was being pretty specific about the ways Israel, the way the Jewish people, the way Nehemiah and his father's house, the way all of the people, I imagine he was confessing specific sins. 
Not just saying, you know, God, we have sinned against you and left it at that. I imagine he was being pretty specific. Because again, as you pray in throughout all these days, when we pray and we, we're confessing sins, just to say, it's kind of like saying, you know, I'm sorry if that hurt your feelings. Well, you're not sorry at all. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. You're sorry that you, you, it's more of a pity thing that it, I'm sorry if you took it that way. You know, to, 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 to confess to someone is not putting conditions on it. It's saying, I have sinned. I have been wrong. I am not doing what is right. And here he is just saying, he is, he is proclaiming in the big picture, we have sinned against you. I and my father's house has sinned against you. It's, it's kind of like, I'll just give you a story. When I lived in Morocco one day, I was coming back home from the, grocery, from the market. And I had like two or three bags, plastic bags in each hand. I had food in it, fruits and vegetables and different things like that. And I'm walking down a street and I'm in front of a hammam. There's a, a Turkish bath right there. And I'm about a block from home. And as I'm walking along, I hear someone kind of holler out to me. Uh, and I turn around and look and there's three young men who are walking towards me. Well, I'm always open for a conversation when I'm there. And so I started talking with them. And they, uh, uh, when I finally started realizing what was going on, they were interested in my jacket and they were interested in my food. And so I'm sitting there with these two or three bags and I realize I'm looking at them and, they, and, and, and they're starting to triangulate me. In other words, there's one over here, there's one over here, and there's one behind me. And I'm just kind of going, God, what do you want me to do now? And so my flesh took over instead of doing what, you know, listening to God. Honestly, it was just me, my flesh. I thought, okay, I'm about to get into a fight. And so I slipped to the other bags in this hand. And when one guy tried to grab for the jacket, I punched him, probably broke his nose. I punched him right in the nose. The other guy come at me this way. I backhand him across this. When I turned around to look at the other guy, he was running in the other direction. And all of a sudden, there's these two men came out of this Turkish bathhouse and they started kicking these guys on the ground out there. And it's just because these guys were troublemakers in the neighborhood. And these two old men knew, okay, these guys are down. Let's get ours in now. And so I was just sitting there shaking. I was, uh, and my hands were bleeding a little bit. They were scratched up and all that. And so when I got home, just like I said, a little over a block away, I get home and Shannon knows something's up. I'm, I'm shaking. I'm, I'm, you know, she knows there's something happening. And when I tell her what's happening and she's going, are you all right? She's looking at my hand and all that. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I just need to go and pray and confess some things. She says, David, you were defending yourself. And I said, yeah, but I kind of enjoyed it. Does that sound like something that I should have enjoyed? I enjoy, I, I, I'm being honest with you. When that happened in the moment, I, I enjoyed putting those two little young punks down and running the third one off. Even if I defended myself, I should not have enjoyed hurting those guys. And, when I, and so I did. I, I, that showed me, and God revealed in me. It's, it's like when I share with you guys, what is the one area that God shows me that I ain't all there yet? And it's when I'm sitting in traffic. That is the one area where God says, man, listen, you ain't, got, you ain't all that in a bag of chips. You, you ain't got your act together. You're still dealing with flesh in your life because when you're looking at this person and saying, you know, y'all need to just get out of the way and let me get from point A to point B. Selfishness on my part. That's God revealing to me, not that people are bad drivers. It's revealing to me that, David, your heart is still selfish. 
your heart is still not 100% in line with what I desire you to be. That, I, I have not been transformed into the likeness of Christ at that point. And that is something to confess. And so I imagine here he is, when he's confessing these sins, he is just naming things, especially when he brings it home. But when he looks back in history and he's starting, man, we blew it there and we blew it there and we blew it there and you kept warning us all the time. You, Isaiah was crying out that we would just get our act together and we, and we blew it then. And that's when the Babylonians kind of came in. Matter of fact, Isaiah, if, 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 if you'll remember a couple of weeks ago or several weeks ago, I mentioned Isaiah 59. Um, Isaiah 59, nope, wrong direction. Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 3, listen to this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short. Okay, listen to this. His hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear is so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Isaiah back then was warning the people, hey, man, your, your sin, God's arm is not so short. His ears are not so dull. But man, it's your sins that's causing the separation between you and your God. It is you, your lips, your hands, your fingers, your heart. It is you who are causing the separation, not God. You are causing that separation. And here he's just pointing out, reminding it. We have sinned. Historically, we have sinned. Recently, we are sinning today. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, in verse 8, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. It says here right off the bat, he says, you commanded your servant Moses saying, this comes right out of Deuteronomy. And, and, and I'm going to, you, can, you can write this down or you can turn there if you want in Deuteronomy chapter 4. But I want to read to you what Moses wrote to them to the Israelites back in that day, to the Jewish people back in that day. And he says this, starting in verse 23. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. When you become a father of children and children's children and have remained long in the hand and act corruptly and make an idol to in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of your Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger I call heaven and earth to witness against you today and you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over to the Jordan to possess it you shall not live long on it but will be utterly destroyed the Lord will scatter you among the peoples 
and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the work of the hands of man, wood and stone, which, which neither see nor hear nor smell. In other words, he's saying here, I'm going to scatter you to the peoples, to the nations. I'm going to scatter you around, and you're going to be influenced at that time to begin worshiping things that are created by man's hand. And we see that all over the world. We see that where people are, are, are worshiping things. When we lived in South Asia there in, in, in India, you know, they, they tied little red ribbons around things that they felt like were gods. And they, there were red ribbons around rocks and trees and things of creation. But there were also red ribbons around things, even houses. They would have a stick sticking up there with a house basically saying this house is a place where a god lives. And they would have all sorts of things going on around there. So he was warning them then that this is a direction you're going to go. If you continue to do this, I'm going to give you over to that. And you're going to continue pursuing the desires of your heart. And you're going to get further and further and further away from me. But he goes on here in chapter, in chapter 4, starting in verse 29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God. And you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. And when you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. He's, he, he's, he's just, Nehemiah is reminding the people here that even back here, a thousand years earlier, you think about where Nehemiah is, a thousand years earlier, he's writing this to the people of Israel, and they're reliving it now. They're reliving it over and over. We can, we can see examples of it, whether it was the, the Assyrians coming in and taking over Israel, whether it was the Babylonians coming in and taking over Judah and Jerusalem, whether it, you just see this all the time. Even when the Persians kind of came over and the people went back to the Jerusalem, they started building up the place and they just started forgetting it. They got selfish again, doing their own thing. They were becoming fearful of the people around them. They weren't trusting God again. History was just replaying itself over and over and over again. And Nehemiah is just trying to remind them, man, a thousand years ago, God said that. He, came, he made a covenant with us. He keeps, he, he keeps his covenant. We, can't, we have done this over the years. Why can't we get this right now? Why can't we do what is right now? Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Again, the people can't do anything. He redeems them because he is great. He is great. We worship a God that is great. It, 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 that's why I, I, I use a phrase all the time. I, I, I want to be able in conversations when I have with people, I want to be able to point to his greatness. I, 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 in my head, that's in my head when I'm sitting there having conversations, whether it's with neighbors or with people that I meet at the ball game the other night. It, 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 I, when I have conversations with people, I'm trying to figure out where in this conversation can I kind of draw their attention to God's greatness. Because God is a great God, an awesome God. And he has 
redeemed us by his great power and by his strong hand. And remember, we're in his hand. Nothing can take us out of that hand. And it's in that hand that he is guiding us, in that hand that he is directing us. It is in his hand that we are secure and safe, protected. In his hand that we are identified with him. So it's that great, strong hand. Oh Lord, verse 11, oh Lord, I beseech you. May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Again, there must be others there that he knows of or he is assuming that there are others who are just as concerned about the people of Israel and Jerusalem and all of that as he is because he mentions here, be attentive to the prayers, not just attentive to the prayer of your servant, but the prayer of your servants who delight and revere in your name. And it's something that they are, their attention is drawn to him. And, 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 and all of this, remember, this is a prayer that Nehemiah is praying and, 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 and just begging and crying out to God for something to happen. Here he's, he thinks, he, he actually talks about, and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Well, that man, I believe, is King Artaxerxes because right next he says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. So I believe he was just kind of saying, I'm the cupbearer to the king. And right before then, pray that I can basically get an audience with this man. Pray that I can be heard by this man. And, and so and we see in verse 1 of chapter 2, that's exactly what happened. We see in, in, in a couple of weeks when we come back and do this chapter 2, we're going to see that the king starts asking him, why are you so down in the mouth? Why, are, why is your countenance? Because you think about it, a cupbearer is not supposed to be sad. You know, when he drinks that stuff, he's not supposed to go. The king doesn't want to drink that stuff. The king, his, the people that serve him, he wants to, be think, he wants to think that he is, a, he, he is compassionate and awesome and great and wonderful and all that kind of stuff. And he doesn't want people that are going to have a sad, long face serving him. He wants people that are joyful, happy, and all that. And we're going to see that Nehemiah is not doing that. He is not that at all. Because his heart is burdened for what is going on with the people. When was the last time our heart was burdened for people. I, I know it's going to be different for all of us. It's going to be different. We're, we've, got, we've, we've got our attention in different places and all that. I, I, I can't help but think this past week as that hurricane hovered over the Bahamas for two or three days or whatever and the pictures we've seen coming out of that, that all of us weren't moved at some point. That all of us weren't thinking, man, boy, what can we do to help those people in the Bahamas? Yes, we can pray. But we can also help by giving. Here's, matter of fact, I just want to throw this out there because it's something that uh, I, I believe in. But there is a group called the um, Baptist Global Response. Uh, if, if you go to the website, gobgr.org, you can donate to them. 100% of those funds goes directly to the people with water and food and, and, and helping get their back on their feet and housing and all that kind of stuff. And, and the reason I like this is when I was in northern India back when that earthquake hit Nepal and we felt it. We were, we were over 100 miles away and our building was shaking. 
I remember Zachary come out of the, the bedroom going, Dad, is the building moving? And, and I was looking at the shadows on the wall doing this, and I just thought that was just India, and a bus rode by, and it shook everything. But, but, but the building was rotating, but, you know, kind of, I'm not rotating, but waving back and forth, and it was kind of a scary moment. And when we were able to get news back up and we saw the destruction in Nepal, we started, how, what can, we, we were praying, but then we realized the BGR, the Baptist Global Response was there in a heartbeat. And we sent two, two of our journeymen to go be a part of that up there. And they were able to, and, and, and what happens when we do that kind of stuff is, man, God begins to move in the hearts of the people that have just gone through those difficult situations. It happened in Indonesia when that tsunami hit. And what was it, like 200,000 people died in that one? They went in there and they started, you know, cleaning the water or, or finding clean water for them and building up stuff. Listen, we don't need to just sit around in hopelessness. There are organizations that we can be a part of if we can't get there ourselves to help out. And 99.9% .9 of us are not going to be able to get there and help out. But we can do something. Yes, pray. But do we mean enough? As, are we moved enough in our prayers to do something else about it? What is it that moves you? What is it that draw, puts us on our knees and causes us to pray for things going on around us. I know there's some of you that are praying for other missionaries around the world. There are, I know there's some of you who are focused on that University of Illinois campus and just praying and praying and working and serving and interacting. Second Chronicles 7.14, Ezra actually writes. He's the guy who wrote the book right before Nehemiah. Ezra wrote, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Ezra, even before Nehemiah, was crying out to the people of Israel saying, man, humble yourself. Cry out to me. Don't keep trying to do it on your own. I can help you. I can take what you've got and multiply that. But what you got ain't enough. I can do it on my own. I'm sure God, God, I can do it on my own. I am doing it on my own. I'm asking you to join me is what God is saying. Join the family of God, yes, but join the work of God as well. And get out there and be a blessing to others. Nehemiah's brokenness over Jerusalem, it led him to prayer. It led him to his knees and in tears and fasting and praying. It led him so that he would pray for those people. And I believe the challenge here for me this week, and I want to challenge you the same thing, is, is let that reverberate in our minds. Let that sink in so that we, that we can look around and see a broken world around us. It's messed up. I know I'm messed up. I can't do it on my own. I've shared with you a couple of little details in my own life to let you know that I ain't got it all together. But I know a God who loves me is great and desires that I am more transformed more into this likeness of Jesus Christ so that I can be of service to him, to a world around me. Let's continue to pursue that. Let's continue to draw near to him so that he can build up in us the capacity to do great things for him.